Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better by clicking the like button on YouTube, by writing a review on iTunes, or by simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Professor Ed Boyden. Ed Boyden is a very well-known pioneer in optogenetics and uh, is working on a variety of uh, other very interesting uh, projects related to neuroscience and neurobiology, and I'm incredibly happy to have him here on my show today. So welcome, Ed. Great to talk to you. Fantastic. So, Ed, would you mind uh, introducing yourself in your words and in a, in a few words and, and what you do for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with your work so far? So <clears throat> I direct a neuroengineering group at MIT. We work on ways to map, readout, control, and even build brain circuits with the goals uh, of really technologies that allow us to confront some of the philosophically challenging questions in neuroscience. Um, I think that all of us are, are fascinated, in, at least to some degree, by how our brains are computing thoughts and feelings and, and so on and so forth. The other issue, of course, is that over a billion people have, have sought some kind of treatment for a medical disorder of the brain. And uh, as the world population ages, that's going to continue to, uh, I think, be something that becomes a problem. And we would definitely want to find ways to uh, help those people. So does that mean that your main goal is kind of treating and finding ways to, to fix brain disorders? Or is that just simply one facet of your work? Well, it's interesting because <laughs> if you want to understand the brain, you're going to have to have such detailed knowledge that it will give you handles that we think will allow you to help repair it and vice versa. If you understand the brain well enough to repair it, you've gained a lot of insight into some of the philosophically uh, interesting aspects of what it means to be human. So I think the missions are inseparable in some ways. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, that's, that's very good. I will definitely come back to that because I want to, I have many questions on that topic, but let me, let me ask you a few personal questions before we get there. And the first one is this, you started as an electrical engineer and then went through physics and ended up being a, a neuroscientist, if I remember. Uh, can you tell us about this sort of fascinating path to where you are today and, and how and why did you have to take all those turns in your career? Well, there are actually even more turns than that. I started out studying chemistry and worked in a research group um, at the University of North Texas that was trying to create uh, life from scratch, you know, try to make DNA um, out of inorganic materials. Playing God. And the <laughs> whole idea was to try, try to really understand something that was philosophically interesting, right? What is the nature of life itself? And so uh, later I went to college at MIT where I studied electrical engineering and physics, and this was also very interesting. Again, there was a sort of philosophical aspect as well as a very practical aspect in terms of being able to build and fix things. And um, finally realized that uh, if you really want to understand the, the nature of being human, uh, going after the brain was very important. And so there's almost a loop of knowledge where, you know, this is sort of how I thought about physics. Our brains can understand the physical world in terms of equations and intuition. And those brains are implemented using cells, which are implemented with chemicals that are built on physical particles, which of course um, are what we try to understand with our, our minds in terms of physics. So it's sort of a loop of understanding. And the question then is where is the weak point in the loop and how do we go about making that uh, solved? And so one idea that, that captured my imagination was that the brain was really where we needed to go next and um, that we, did, we needed better technologies. And so this training in chemistry, physics, electrical engineering, and computer science is very helpful because um, you know, the perspective that this gives us building blocks to go after um, in our quest to uh, build technologies to help us understand and, and fix the brain. Yeah, and you can draw on a variety of tools and, and, and disciplines in order to sort of bring them together and sort of make uh, pioneering uh, sort of uh, innovation such as uh, the one that, that you and your team did in, in the field of optogenetics. Well, I think the goal is to work backwards from the properties of the brain and then survey all the fields of science and engineering 
and then assemble the optimal tool that then allows us to solve a class of problems that are either about fundamentally understanding the brain or about repairing the brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you this. You mentioned that one of the, you were very interesting early on in the very big questions. What is the nature of life? What is the nature of being human? And eventually you concluded that the brain is the key to answering at least the latter question of those. Um, and uh, I even read an article uh, by the CNN uh, where they called, where, where they said, quote, top brain scientist is a is philosopher at heart. Hmm. Uh, so, so talk to me a little bit about the importance of philosophy within the realm of your work. Because here's the thing, I have a very good electrical engineer friend of mine, and he always likes to point to my face that philosophers are bullshitters. Because you see, he can always point toward a tangible asset, tangible benefit and result of his work, whereas philosophers talk all day long and got nothing to show for it at the end of the, the day other than some pie in the sky or, or you know, air towers. So what, what would you say about that? Well, I think if you build technologies, then you can try to push the boundaries of what can be explained in terms of the hard physical sciences, right? So an analogy that's often used is that if you look back a couple hundred years at the science of, of life, people often wondered what makes a living thing alive, right? Mm -hmm. And nowadays, I think, if you ask even a, a child, you know, or a, a high school student, what makes a bacterium alive? Well, they can point it to the DNA and the RNA and the proteins and the cell walls and the metabolic processes. And uh, there doesn't need necessarily to be um, a lot of, of uh, uh, speculation beyond sort of understanding it in terms of core physical principles. Mm -hmm. And so one approach, and this is the approach we're taking, is to build technologies that allow us to try to address philosophically interesting things. Um, and Ultimately, one goal might be to try and really understand, uh, you know, in, in analogous to how you can understand how a, a bacterium is implemented using nucleic acids and proteins and small molecules, um, whether that can be done with the mind itself. So do you think that philosophy does have a role to, to play at the cutting edge of science today? Well, I think that it's great to build technologies that are aimed towards some end, right? So when you set out... You know, I often say we like to work backwards in our group, right? You begin with some big goal and they work backwards from that goal, build the tools that then get you to that goal. Mm -hmm. And so if the goal is something that uh, is defined by a philosophical question, then at least you are aiming um, your intentionality and your, your research directions um, towards something that hopefully can help reveal something about what it means to be human, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, one could also ask many different kinds of questions. You know, um, you know, uh, there are ecological questions in neuroscience, right? How do certain organisms interact? There are clinical questions. Can we fix the Parkinson's disease? And these are all very interesting. That's what I like about neuroscience is that there isn't just one single goal. But I'd argue that if one uses sort of um, these sort of almost obvious questions about the nature of humanity as the goal, then you, you also solve a lot of these other problems potentially, like how to treat various brain disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll come back to that. But let's take it step by step and sort of lay out the foundation first, because neither me nor most of our viewers would be experts in the field of neuroscience or especially uh, optogenetics. So let's start with that. First of all, what is optogenetics? So the brain is really complicated. Within a cubic millimeter of brain tissue, you're going to have 100,000 cells and perhaps 900 million connections in that cubic millimeter between those cells. Mm -hmm. The cells are computing using electricity and the connections are computing using various chemical messengers. And so one of the key questions then is how does this tightly intertwined circuitry compute and work together as an emergent whole to do things like compute decisions and thoughts and emotions and actions. Mm -hmm. So optogenetics is basically a tool set where We've adapted molecules from the natural world that convert light into electrical energy or electrical signals, install them in neurons using various gene delivery techniques. And now when we shine light on those cells, light gets converted to electricity, electricity drives the cells uh, outputs, and then we can play back neural activity patterns to the brain itself. Mm. So from an understanding standpoint, it allows us to activate cells in patterns 
and see how they contribute to the circuits in which they are embedded. And then from a fixing the brain standpoint, activating certain cells or silencing them can tell us whether they might be good clinical targets and perhaps controlling cells directly could be a prosthetic platform at some point as well. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Now, let me grab a couple of things that you've mentioned so far already. You've mentioned how the brain cells compute and, and for example, in your TED talk on the, on the topic of optogenetics, you start by saying, by referring to what you call, quote, the computer in your head, end of quote. So talk to us a little bit more about the brain that we all have. And is it proper to say that it's a computer in our heads? Well, I guess it, means, it depends on what you mean by computer, right? Computer means different things to different people. To some people, they think of a Turing machine. Others think about this uh, Harvard architecture where you, know, you have a certain set of instructions and you have a certain you know, set of data upon which it operates. So if you instead think about a computer in a very general term as something that um, you know, transforms information in a, in, and results in some kind of output that's adaptive, then I think then uh, the brain has to be a computer. Uh, but of course, computer science has many different branches from the very theoretical to the very um, applied. And so um, it's quite possible that when people debate whether the brain is a computer or not, they're really debating on what they mean by computer. Mm -hmm. So I think we'd all agree that the brain can take in information and then results in information that is adaptive and um, you know, that, that can be used to serve the organism in its attempt to survive and, and operate in a complex world. And so in some sense, I think that we can regard that as computation. Because, you know, I interviewed Dr. Stuart Hammer of, uh, a few months ago, and he said that uh, portraying the, a neuron as a simple classical computer is a great oversimplification of all the stuff that's going on there. Well, don't forget that a, a classical Turing machine can compute quite a lot, right? If in Turing's original definition, a Turing machine has infinite memory, for example, so I wouldn't trivialize the computer. I guess the question is, if you're trying to portray a neuron as something that's extremely oversimplistic, like a transistor or a 1980s era handheld calculator, one might then be disappointed to find out that it's actually incredibly much more complicated. The main question is perhaps, I think, whether a neuron is reducible to zeros and ones. Well, an infinite chain of zeros and ones could hold a heck of a lot of information, right? So, especially uh, if it's infinite, yes. <laughs> yeah. So again, I mean, if you, it, it depends what you mean by a computer, right? If you go back to the definition of a Turing machine, it actually has an infinite memory, right? And so, I think when when people talk about a simple computer, they need to be very precise in how they define it. Mm -hmm. What do they mean about the number of zeros and ones that it has? What do you mean about the number of of uh, operations per second and what kinds of operations it's capable of. And certainly you can come up with computers made out of tinker toys and Lego bricks that don't do a whole lot. And certainly you can also imagine that you could implement computers in very complex biological substrates um, that even mesh well with, with you know, what one might call, I guess, um, classical computer science. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Uh, we met uh, at the Global Future 2045 conference in New York City. And uh, I was kind of a little bit dismayed there to observe Ray Kurzweil, who is generally very sort of uh, uh, restrained and, and sort of very cool individual to kind of really strongly attack the Penrose Hameroff uh, orc or uh, theory of consciousness by saying that we, we know that that's simply wrong. Uh, now, since then, there have been some developments uh, or a few papers, uh, at least one paper actually, that suppose allegedly provides evidence in support of the Penrose hammer of uh, quantum theory of consciousness. So let me ask you this, where do you stand on that? How, how do you see that and, and especially in the light of that new evidence? Can you describe what evidence you're talking about? Well, there is a, a paper, huh, that's a great question, but um, um, 
the not name on the spot, but I just, just uh, want to know exactly what, what we're discussing. The name is escaping. Well, basically, there, <coughs> there was a, a Japanese uh, researcher or a researcher who is in uh, doing research in Japan right now, and I'm, I'm looking through my computer because I've got tons of papers here and see if I can pull out the exact reference, but where in uh, lab uh, sort of room temperature, uh, there were some observed quantum effects in neurons. Uh, and the paper got published uh, with references and everything. I'm just looking here. Let Give me just one second. I'm just pulling out the original paper. Okay, uh, okay the original paper that where that uh, research has been cited is called Consciousness in the Universe, a Review of the Org-Or Theory. And it was recently published by uh, Stuart Kamaroff and Roger Penrose. And that's where they refer to that uh, recent research. So... Uh, uh, I probably need to take a look at it then. I, I'm not familiar with the paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I understand. I totally understand. So um, you should definitely check it out. But there's a lot of... It's been sort of creating a lot of buzz lately. Uh, because, as we know, the, the, the hammer of Penrose... Uh, theory of consciousness has been highly criticized uh, for being non-falsifiable and non-testable and supposedly this new research kind of throws some light in their favor supposedly. Hmm. Yeah, forward me a link. Uh, I, I will definitely, after we're done, I will, I will send you a PDF uh, file with, with the paper itself. Now, uh, let's move on then. So, so and that's, a, by the way, a question from one of our uh, viewers. Uh, uh, Callum Chase, who says, sounds like you have uh, your fingers in both uh, the Human Brain Project and the Brain Pies. Is there recently announced collaboration important, and would you mind telling us a little bit more about your involvement in that? So, the United States Brain Project um, is rather a pretty diverse portfolio of different projects. So, for example, the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation and DARPA and so on, each have their own scientific priorities, whether it's making better prosthetics or mapping neural activity or working on better ways to control neurons. So it's not a single coordinated effort with only one goal. Mm -hmm. um, the European Human Brain Project seems to be a bit different in the sense that it does seem to be aimed at the goal of making a model of the brain. Mm -hmm. And I'm not clear on the details of how they are coordinating um, or if they are coordinating. Um, uh, but I think that there's a, a strong ethos in the U.S. Brain Project that we need better tools if we want to have better maps and abilities to control and analyze brain circuitry. And so um, our group participated in um, about a dozen proposals so far uh, for the Brain Initiative. Mm -hmm. And the goal really has been to develop strategies for mapping, recording, and controlling brain circuitry. Yeah. And 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 uh, the other audience question uh, that I have here is from Kyle Lanyon, and he says, kind of refers to our previous uh, question, which is, does Ed have any pre-existing theory of mind or philosophy of mind on uh, cognition? Uh, and what's his take on Kurzweil's brain model or, or his take on uh, Randall Kuhn's model? So I like to study the history of science because I think you learn a lot about the future mm -hmm. by seeing how ideas gel and when people get to the ground truth on something. Mm -hmm. um, for the brain, we don't yet have a parts list of the brain. We don't know how many cell types there are. We don't have maps of the brain except for the very simplest of organisms. Mm -hmm. And we don't have molecular descriptions of the brain, nor activity maps, nor the ability to control entire brain circuits. And so our focus is very much on building those tools um, in the same way that if you look at you know, other fields, there needs to be the basic technologies that lay out the building blocks, right? Yeah. Whether it's the periodic table of the elements uh, for chemistry, or whether it's various um, lists of particles or... Uh, interactions in physics. And so I think, in, or even for biology, where, of course, it's harder to come to these ground truths, in cer certain parts of biology, it has been possible, like the structure of, of DNA and um, the genetic code and um, other things like that. So mm -hmm. 
our approach is very much focused on building the technologies that allow us to then enumerate and describe the mechanistic processes through which neural uh, circuits interact, both processes within cells and processes within cellular circuits. So what does that say about the Ray Kurzweil approach? Um, can you describe what you, which aspect of the approach? I mean, there's a whole body of work, which is to try to make models of neural networks. So that's been very successful in terms of making computer algorithms that can do various things. Exactly, right? the Markov models and stuff, right? Yeah, so, so is that a useful way of approaching the field and especially with the explicit goal of sort of creating artificial intelligence or working towards that goal anyway? Well, certainly there's a lot that can be done in computer science just by thinking about the algorithms, right? And new strategies for searching and statistically connecting uh, different uh, topics or ideas and representing information in, in semantic ways as well. I mean, the field of computer science has been very successful. So our, our approach is very much focused on understanding the biological brain. Um, and I can I think you could argue that you can make a lot of progress in developing algorithms mm -hmm. by ignoring the brain and focusing very much on the mathematics and statistics and whatnot of, of computer science. And that's been borne out, right? Look at mm -hmm. you know, Watson and Google and all these um, engines that can generate you know, connections between um, ideas and translate text from one language to another and so on. But our, our approach is very much focused on trying to understand biological brains. And that's in part out of our twin desires to understand something about the human condition, for which that means we have to really confront biological matter if we want to understand it, and also a desire to help cure, you know, maybe, and definitely treat human patients. That also requires a detailed understanding of biological mechanism in the normal and pathological state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, I got a little distracted because I was looking for that reference uh, of that paper that, that I was referring to, even though I have the original paper by Penrose and Hameroff. I also found uh, another reference. So uh, the name of the scientist uh, is uh, Anirban Bandiopati. And uh, there was a rec oh, January 16, 2014 uh, article in Science Daily uh, titled Discovery of Quantum Vibrations in Microtubules Inside Brain Neurons Supports Controversial Theory of Consciousness. And then they refer that. So I'll, I'll send you those links after we're done. Sure, sure. Uh, now, how important is, though, this phenomenon of consciousness for your work anyway? I mean, should we even care about it? Because, you see, just yesterday I interviewed... Uh, Peter Voss, who is also working on artificial intelligence, and he told me uh, a couple of things which shocked me, one of which was consciousness is a solved problem, as far as he's concerned. In other words, it wasn't really that important with respect to his work, and therefore for him it was not an issue. So is it important for you? Is it an issue? How far are we along that line? A couple thoughts. One is that I think certainly a lot of people are fascinated by consciousness just for its own sake, right? One could argue about the function of consciousness. For example, there are many psychological, neurological, neurosurgical, and psychiatric studies that show that our conscious awareness of our decisions, for example, can occur after our brains have already made those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, our conscious awareness of a stimulus might be independent even of our emotional processing of that stimulus. And so, if one is looking for a function of consciousness, uh, that's a very different question than simply asking what is consciousness itself, right? And uh, as as humans, I think a lot of us are interested in, you know, what is it like to have a feeling and what is it like to have a thought? And is there some structure or pattern of activity or other functionality that generates these subjective experiences um, and how can it be defined? So I think uh, it's, I think if there are people who are looking for the function of consciousness, uh, that's a separate topic, perhaps, who knows, from, you know, just interested in what consciousness is. And one could argue that the definition is itself something that, that has to be very precisely made. So what's your definition, if you have one? Um, well, at this point, I think it's something that, you know, all of us have an intuitive feel for our own subjective experience. And 
uh, one could potentially argue that if you could define it, then it'd be possible to study it in a way that would yield fundamental mechanistic insights. And so from that point of view, the definitions are, are very uh, difficult to make very, very precise. On the other hand, there are those who have been breaking down consciousness into very specific um, components like attention or mm-hmm. self-awareness or self-identity or um, feeling. You know, there are books like uh, Damasio's The Feeling of What Happens, for example, that try to um, think about specific aspects of consciousness. And then others have tried to explore you know, the neural correlates of consciousness from a sensory point of view. And still others have been trying to figure out whether there are human-specific, you know, identity, you know, identity aspects of consciousness that might involve memory and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're finding in the current state of the field is that people have been finding components or processes or functions or things associated with consciousness. Um, and so an interesting question is, is that set of things enough to make up consciousness or um, it, does the definition still need other things that um, that are, are difficult to study. And I think one could argue that subjective experience itself, given that it's only accessible to one's internal, you know, being is something that still requires additional, um, work if we want to really understand consciousness in terms of fundamental building blocks that you know, can be studied and well-defined potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, by the way, the, the Consciousness Biannual Conference uh, organized by Dr. Hamroff at the University of Arizona, and it's actually happening next week. Are you planning to go there by any chance? Uh, well, next week is the Media Labs uh, Spring uh, Open House and Event, where all the people who are collaborators and other other um, partners are, are showing up. So we'll be in full gear uh, to uh, work with the foundations and companies and partners and nonprofits and so on that are making the media lab the kind of anti-disciplinary place that that um, you know allows you to do things like grow neuroengineering tools. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're not going to to uh, Phoenix. Given that our current state of technology is that we're really focused on building the tools that really allow us to map circuits and and break it down to parts, you know we're very eager to partner with as many people as possible especially bridging many disciplines of physical sciences, like mechanical and materials and electrical and physics and so on. Um, uh, but no, I'm not, I'm not journeying out next week. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, Peter Voss told me he used to go there f- for a couple of years and, and then he kind of got so disappointed that, you know, he's like, they've been making that kind of biannual conference for the past 20 years and I don't see any real progress. So I don't see any reason, he said, to, to go back again. Oh, uh, that that was his take on things. And, and in a funny way, he kind of agreed. I mean, for him, consciousness is kind of like, I don't know if it's an illusion, but it's he's called it a solved problem. And he said it's not really important to his work. It's funny because for Alan Watts, uh, for example, consciousness was, uh, I think what he said, chronic muscle tension. <laughs> That's like the, the Zen Buddhism point of view. But... Wow. Which, which was very, very interesting. But, but that kind of very much actually connects to what Dr. Hameroff again said, which is they, they did an fMRI uh, studies uh, on people uh, taking GMT and, and, and other drugs like that uh, while those people were experiencing suppo- uh, supposedly all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, experiences. And, you know, the theory would be that since they're conscious and aware of what was happening, the brain would be lit and there will be tons of activity in the brain while those things were happening. But the actual surprise that they discovered was that it was quite the opposite. Most of the brain was shut down while people had clear memories and reported of all those things that they've experienced in that time. Would you care to comment on that? Which brain scanning method? Was this functional MRI? Yes. FMRI, yes. So one thing that's important to remember is that functional MRI measures blood flow um, and blood oxygenation uh, level dependent responses or bold responses. Mm-hmm. And those are the composites of many kinds of metabolic processes driven by parasites and um, astrocytes and other cell types that are 
perhaps not always reflecting the activity of individual neurons in a neural network. And so, for example, suppose you see a change in activity in a region of the brain that looks like it's increasing. That could be because it's more active, but it also could be because the inhibitory cells in that area, in theory, could be more active, right? Which would result in a shutdown of activity. I mean, this is not very well understood yet, how the um, brain imaging signals correspond to the activity of special, a specific neural cell types, right? And within a cubic millimeter of brain tissue that generates one of these voxels on the fMRI, you might have intermeshed thousands of different kinds of cells. And so I think that um, this is part of why that we are so focused on technology is that if we really want to understand fundamental brain mechanisms, one might want to be able to figure out exactly how specific cell types in the network are responding to a specific brain input or implementing a specific brain state. Mm -hmm. Let me bring the, the research uh, of another controversial, perhaps, uh, scientist here who is a lot closer to me here in Toronto, uh, Dr. Norman Deutsch. Uh, I recently watched a couple of fascinating documentaries about his work, um, and, and I think it's, he wrote a book called The Brain That Changes Itself uh, and kind of talks about neuroplasticity and all of that, where he puts forward the claim that the brain is not a machine right that it has to be understood in its own terms that you know it that classical understanding that the brain is a mechanical uh st structure consisting of parts and if a certain parts break down therefore the only way to fix it would be to go and fix mechanically that part or remove it or replace it with something else he says is not an accurate representation of what happens within the brain and then he gives, in support of that claim, he gives a number of cases where uh, the brain can heal itself. In other words, thoughts can allegedly influence and change the structure of the brain, just like the structure of the brain can influence and change the thoughts. So he says it's a full circle, it's a full loop, <coughs> and, and the brains are plastic. And the best example to support that claim is in people with certain kind of brain damage, uh, we can retrain the brain so that other parts of the brain can take over and, and do the perform the function of that physical part of the brain which was damaged during an accident, for example. So what 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 and and therefore he says that it's not it's the classical view of the brain as a as a complex machine is wrong in his view. Well, again, it might depend on how you define machine, right? I mean, if you think of a of a highly advanced potential computer system that can adapt and learn and change, you know, and, and current computers are quite capable of changing, um, then one might say that modern machines are very capable of change as well, right? And they don't self heal, though. That's the that's the one of the key points. A machine, when it breaks, it cannot fix itself, whereas the brain supposedly could. Well, my computer has a virus scanner that can, if uh, it detects a virus, which thankfully hasn't happened yet, can go in and delete it. Is that not self-healing? Not in the sense of hardware. His claim is that the software of the brain, that is to say your thoughts, can alter the hardware, that is to say your physical brain structure. And he actually has a very uh, substantial body of evidence in support of that. But still, if you're thinking... Are you familiar with his work? I, I, I just presume that you are, personally, but are you? Well, it would be nice to know some of the details of what he thinks um, um, uh, about, but I certainly agree there's a lot of plasticity, right? You know, there is all these examples where patients who are blind and lost uh, their visual inputs, their visual cortex um, can change and suddenly becomes responsive to touch, right? So... There's a lot of evidence for brain plasticity. That's not um, necessarily uh, uh, controversial, right? I mean, there's a lot of evidence for changes in the brain that goes back many, many decades. And um, you can find uh, examples, for example, of the placebo effect, right? Where somebody takes a, a, a pill or has part of their brain stimulated, and maybe the actual drug or the actual stimulation can make them better. Mm -hmm. But the placebo, that is them thinking that they are taking a drug or a therapeutic effect, also is beneficial, right? Mm -hmm. So 
there's there's probably a huge number of examples of this kind of adaptive plasticity out there. I think that's not controversial at all. Hmm. Well, I, I think his his sort of uh, research, and I'll send you the link so that you can have a look, but uh, uh, his claims are very substantial in the sense that in his view, I think, the way I understand it, trying to create hardware tools, as you said, to fix the brain is the wrong way altogether. Because he says, if we observe any certain kind of problem or damage in the brain, we, we would probably be better spending our time to see and find out ways of retraining the brain itself. How can the properly functioning parts of the brain basically take over and fix the issue on its own, which is like really... <laughs> uh, I, I think it's it's a real far off kind of claim. Uh, well, the evidence I think if you look at you know the eighty thousand people who have had deep brain stimulators implanted and who have been relieved of their Parkinsonian tremor or their their you know essentially incapacitated state and inability to move, you know I think one can um, choose not to be treated, but certainly there's a lot of benefit to mm -hmm. the treatments. You know? And so I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating in the end. If you're trying to cure people, then then go and cure people. Yeah, and and he had a, a number of people that he had cured with with those uh, respond with uh, in in both of the documentaries, uh, and specifically, actually, a number of them were with tremors. I don't think they were Parkinson's, but they had uh, problems with uh, uh, with tremors, and and he showed how he basically retrained the brain, and the tremors were eliminated with certain kind of treatment. Uh, rather than, let's say, a tool or a gadget or a, or deep brain stimulation. Uh, so, well, it's certainly good that people want to help others. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I I couldn't agree more. So so let me ask you to tell us a little bit more about your work. What what let let's start again with the goals because we discussed about the importance of setting <coughs> goals. So, what's your dream? What's the the sort of the ultimate goal or the best case scenario that you're working towards? Well, if we have tools that let us map the brain, ideally with molecular information and precise wiring, mm -hmm. and if we can record the activity of the brain so we can see what kinds of real-time processes are occurring within the brain, mm -hmm. and then we can control the brain so we can play back activity and see what a particular activity pattern is doing, and if we can build brains, which of course requires us to understand the other three things, because otherwise, how do we know that we're done with our our circuit, right? Mm -hmm. We don't even know what the natural cell types are. Then I think we can have made some significant inroads in understanding how the circuits of the brain are generating the kinds of complex computations that underlie behavior and pathology, but also can give us the handles to really try to, to control and, and, and fix these problems as well. And so our technologies that we developed over the last couple of years, including robots for analyzing the cells of the brain, uh, optogenetic tools for activating and silencing neurons with light, and more recently we've started to work on new kinds of, of microscopes that might help us map the brain in more detail. Uh, we're very interested in how these technologies might be used um, by the neuroscience community, but also as integrated packages working together to uh, reveal integrative understandings of brain circuit functions. Mm -hmm. And and so, would you would you give us like a sort of a more overarching so so what? Let's say we understand the the neurological pathways in the brain. Let's say we can put it all together. Let's say we have the tools. So what? What what is it that we can do that's so that's going to be so fundamentally different than what we can do now? So first of all, I think that because the brain is sort of a pre-paradigmatic field, right? It's not like chemistry or molecular biology where a lot of the ground truth has been established for many of the concepts. You know, for example, many of us think of the brain as a circuit made of cells, but many of us also think of the cell as an incredibly complex network of signals within, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not clear for sure where one has to end up in order to achieve full understanding. And so I think that when we build these tools and one achieves a certain description of the brain, one has to potentially be, um, you know, one potentially arrives at a partial answer and then one has to build new tools to go further into detail. So depending upon how this cycle goes, uh, further and further detail, a couple of things become possible. 
One possibility, of course, is that if you understand how the brain computes things like decisions or feelings, this really gives humanity a deeper understanding of things like irrationality and conflict and strife and so on. And uh, even just knowing that something has a mechanism can be very powerful. It allows you potentially um, to uh, you know, move beyond such kinds of, of um, uh, constraints. And that's something that makes me very optimistic. You know, and when I was at uh, the World Economic Forum last year, many of the people were like, oh, you know, <clears throat> actually it was two years ago. In Davos. Yes, and they were talking about, uh, you know, the Euro crisis and, you know, conflict in many parts of the world. And, and um, one of the people there said, you know, economics and psychology can only go so far. We need to understand the basic building blocks of what makes humanity do what it does. And so we had a very good chat about brain science and where it might go in the decades to come. So one possible and uh, you know, likely outcome is that if we really understand sort of the building blocks of thought and feeling and decisions that this um, allows us to give names to and perhaps even overcome some of the building blocks of things like irrationality and, and so on and so forth. Secondly, I think if you can really build realistic brain circuits, and if you can achieve control over brain circuits by inputting information into defined points in the network, or if you can have such molecular understanding of the brain that it allows you to uh, pinpoint the uh, you know, potential drug targets that you could develop small molecule pharmaceuticals to that allow you to alter a brain circuit for the better, this results in very, very high effic efficacy therapeutics. And that's something that neuroscience has craved. In the first century of neuroscience, almost all of the treatments for brain disorders were found by chance. Um, you know, antipsychotics were descendants of antihistamines. Um, lithium for treating bipolar disorder was a control experiment by an investigator who was trying to inject the urine of schizophrenic patients into rats and needed a control. And so that was where lithium urate was used. And um, to his credit, he hunted down the lithium and found out that the lithium was what was calming down the animals and so on and so forth, right? It's been a lot of serendipity, but serendipity doesn't necessarily let you apply the principles of engineering in a iterative and continuously progressing fashion, mm -hmm. say the way that Moore's law makes computer, computer chips faster every year mm -hmm. for the brain. And so you could argue that in the past several decades, only a tiny handful of new therapeutics, like fundamentally new kinds of therapeutic have appeared and the progress rate is very slow. I think if we had fundamental mechanistic understandings of how brain circuits compute and how those computations change in brain disorder states, this could help very much to reveal ways to treat brain disorders. Mm -hmm. A third impact is if we understand how the brain computes, this could yield new algorithmic insights into very complex things like decision-making um, and what, what people often like to talk about is artificial intelligence. Although one could argue that you almost need a new name for intelligence is based upon realistic human brain circuits. Maybe you'd call it synthetic intelligence, where here's natural intelligence, which is what scientists study uh, in neuroscience, and they have artificial intelligence, which is largely being thought of by extremely creative computer scientists, but given that we don't have complete brain maps, um, it's not yet exploiting the knowledge of brain circuitry. But potentially with knowledge of brain circuitry, you could imagine, for example, that if you had a complete map of an organism and a complete map of its activity, you could try to load that into a computer and simulate it, and then try to understand how those circuits are actually computing decisions or responses in, um, you know, downstream of various kinds of input. Interestingly enough, when I interviewed Dr. Marvin Minsky, he said that that's both a waste of time and money to the degree that he was worried it's going to bring about a new nuclear winter in the field of AI. Because he said that unless you have an overarching theory of mind, then the mere process of sort of going through the painstaking process of sort of uh, creating a brain simulation would not really bring about any new breakthroughs. Uh, and it's just enormous waste of time, money, and resources. Well, what would you say about that? Well, ideally, I was very surprised one, personally, but. Well, of course, one wants to derive theory from the data, right? Suppose you see... No, he says you have to start with the theory first. That's his crucial point. And then, because that sort of gives guidance to your sort of... 
stabbing at the data because I mean otherwise you have to really be serendipitous as you as you mentioned to even get anywhere supposedly. Well, if you look at where insights come from, data is really essential, right? Without the X-ray crystals that say Rosalind Franklin was deriving, would the structure of DNA have been solved? I think almost nobody thinks that's the case, right? And without the uh, pioneering work of many groups of deciphering the genetic code, what makes proteins what they are, um, without those data sets, it's unlikely that people would have been able to study the, the functions of proteins in a way that, that people would um, appreciate. And of course, the periodic table of the elements came out of a huge amount of chemical insight from the 1700s and 1800s about how elements have different properties and certain periodic patterns that are empirically derived um, you know, was what caused Mendeleev and others to recognize that there was structure to chemistry. And so if you look at the history of science, data is good. And certainly you want theory as well, but there's a strategy where one can try to take data and then make theories that explain the data. And of course, some people like to make theories that are as simple as possible to explain the data. Others, you know, prefer to, you know, you know, not try to, to you know, sort of overfit data to specific circumstances, but try to embed, you know, flexibility and other ways to go. Um, but definitely having data is important. Now that said, theory is useful as well. Um, and, uh, you know, in the long run, essential, of course. Uh, but if one has data, then one can potentially make hypotheses and theories and descriptions of uh, what's going on that accurately reflect what's going on in reality. And so our goal is, therefore, to build the tools that help people collect this data. Mm -hmm. as, as a funny si side note, Noam Chomsky kind of also agreed with, with Marvin Minsky when I interviewed Noam. Uh, and it was funny to see how those two people came from kind of different starting point of views to kind of the same conclusions. But anyway, let me move on here and see. I have one I... more comment on that, though. Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Absolutely. So my very first project in neuroscience was with uh, Michael Fee and Sebastian Sung, and it was a computational project. And we were trying to make a model that could explain some of the properties of the songbird when it generates um, its rhythmic cascade of syllables and, and motifs. And many people like the songbird because of the temporal precision of its song. And some have even speculated that it might be a useful model for some of the motor patterns that are involved with generating language. And certainly some of the aspects are almost certainly conserved across species. Mm -hmm. What we quickly found, though, was that many of these models were difficult to test because we didn't have the data in order to fully explore whether the model was false or true. So, for example, I wanted to have a certain pattern of activity in order to generate a certain sequence of syllables. And we didn't know the conductances and connectivity and ion channels and receptors and transmitters that are actually there in the circuit. So one could make up a whole repertoire of such things. And actually, we made a, a model that could generate some of the aspects of the bird song, including some of the things that are hard to explain, like the irregularity of the first few notes of the song. Mm -hmm. But, you know, without the data, to see whether any of these conductances or connections or transmitters or uh, receptors or ion channels are there, it's hard to know where to go next. And so one could argue that what we're trying to do is, look, there's all sorts of computational theories you'd love to be able to test, but we don't yet have the data sets that allow us to test them. And so there's a lot of theory that we would love to be able to investigate, such as, you know, how precisely do neural codes have to be timed in order to result in effective communication or computation? What kinds of emergent patterns are important? Or do microcircuits operate in small clusters to compute you know, in modular form? Or indeed, does the entire brain operate as an entire circuit and separating out emotion modules from cognition modules, from motor modules, from sensory modules, you know, might be the wrong way to go. These are things we'd love to, to be able to test, but we argue that you need tools in order to make those tests. Yeah, to me, to me personally, that makes a lot of sense. I think theory and data or theory and practice, therefore, have to go hand in hand. That's, I think, the only viable way towards progress. You come up with a hypothesis, you test, you adjust the hypothesis given the test results, and that's, I think, pretty much how you make progress. Yeah. Well, um, we also want to do for the field what the field needs. And if there are already um, 
many pushes on the theory front, and of course, many great experimentalists in neuroscience, but relatively few groups that develop, that develop tools, and we're good at developing tools, and have had a long track record of developing tools, that might be a way for us to help raise all boats by developing tools that help the experimentalists test the theories, and then complete this loop that then allows us to accelerate and to have progress in furthering um, all aspects of the neural enterprise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you this. Is there a place or a space for free will in your sort of theory of mind or, or in your ideas? Because you are talking about the computation, the, the basic, the underlying physics of how the brain is uh, built. Uh, and, and if we sort of focus at the physics end for a second here, pure classical Newtonian physics, it seems to me it would not allow us to have much for free will, would it? Again, I think it, it, the defining free will is very important, right? So are you defining yes. free will as um, something that's completely independent of any biological substrate? No. <laughs> because we know from the first century neuroscience, there are many famous patients, for example, where, you know... Uh, free will I define in the following way. Our ability to choose a course of action based on internal stimuli, but not determined by them. Right? So, if we embrace Newton classical Newtonian physics, basically it would says, give me the, the, the force and the direction of an atom and I can basically predict sort of everything from there onwards. But as long as you talk about conscious, intelligent beings such as humans, I would say if free will were to exist at all, it has to be able to take into account the outside stimuli that we get from the physical world and yet allow a little space for us to making a conscious decision for a course of action and therefore shift the directions of those atoms. So, and so I think that's the crux of, for me personally, that's the crux of the problem. On the one hand, if I embrace the classical Newtonian sort of physics-based model, I don't see how free will would fit. And on the other hand, I don't personally see much evidence yet in support of the penrose hameroff model for quantum uh, consciousness, but it seems to me that's the only way from a philosophical point of view that I can account for free will. I mean, and, and that sort of uncertainty was, of course, the reason why Albert Einstein, you know, spent so much time trying to, to prove first that quantum mechanic was false and in the end the best he could do was say that it's just simply incomplete because, you see, God couldn't play dice with the universe. And he was very much a determinist, of course. So, if what you're looking for is uncertainty, you actually can get that with classical Newtonian mechanics, right? Imagine an ideal gas of particles bouncing around with some temperature, right? You know, you don't need to invoke quantum entanglement or some other kind of process to have uncertainty, right? Or there's also chaos theory. Imagine the Lorentz attractor, right? Where very quickly the equations become unpredictable. Again, no need for any kind of of non-classical mechanics, right? But do any of those cases have bearing on upon the brain? That's what I want to know. Is there any way we can come up with free will or, or uncertainty within the brain since we've already called it a physical system and, and therefore follows physical laws? Well, the other question is, is uncertainty what you want if you want to, if you're thinking about a theory of free will? Is noise and randomness really what we we want to focus on if indeed the goal is to talk about some kind of, of conscious process, right? Not Again, maybe it's best to look at the data. Okay. So there are several studies now going back many decades, but a few, a, few, a, few, a few years ago, a group at UCLA and a group at Harvard published a paper where they asked people to, whenever they want, make a freely willed decision, like move your hand or something. <laughs> and they found by recording single neurons in the human brain of neurosurgical patients who volunteered while they're having, usually it's epilepsy neurosurgery, um, to have the neurons in the brain recorded while they did a brief task, they found neurons that would fire one and a half seconds yeah. or so before people felt like they're making a freely willed decision, right? Yes. And there are classical uh, experiments, I think by uh, Benjamin Levet and others from almost half a century ago, where the EEG, you can find evidence of changes that happen a fraction of a second before people feel like they're making a freely willed decision. So now you have the possibility that indeed, whatever we call free will 
is operating, but it's not related to consciousness. Does that confound your definition at all? Or? No, it doesn't confound it. And I'm familiar with that research. And actually, in support of what you just said, there's a number of psychological studies that basically say we make or we've made our we've made up our minds long before we kind of come up with rational, logical justifications for whatever it is that we yeah. want to do. On the pure psychology level, there are examples from, say, split brain patients, right, where they tell them as soon as you see some object that's shown in one to one half of their brain, I want you to go out the door. And if they show it to the half of the brain that in that patient is not language dominant, they can't talk about it, but they'll go out the door. And then when you ask them, they'll just make up some reason, right? Like, oh, I have to, you know, go meet a friend. So they, they, they're desperately trying to explain what they're doing, right? So in so, your view, in your view, what's your take? Do we have free will or are you a determinist in, in the way that we don't? Well, it depends on what you really mean by, by free will. I'm not completely convinced and I, I'm willing to be, you know, uh, go through the logic, you know, but it'd be nice to go down the list of things to see whether free will and determinism truly are incompatible, right? And, and you don't, you think that they're not necessarily incompatible. You can have determinism and free will at the same time. I think it requires a very specific definition of free will. So we've gone just in our own conversation here alone from free will being a conscious decision making already to being unconscious decision making. And now we're talking about potentially, you know, um, incorporating biases from the environment that are really, um, you know, unrelated to internal processing, but are rather stimulus driven. And so I think what we have to do is really pin down a very specific definition. So give me the do. best, the best one for you. Um, Let me pin you down a little bit. <laughs> well, one possibility is that you want to make the most optimal, optimal decision given the circumstances, right? So you have various inputs and you have various goals and various emotional states and various uh, strategies that you could use to accomplish it. And you want to pick an optimal strategy, right? I mean, that would be a decision-making view on the matter. And many people who work on decision-making do try to figure out how the brain integrates external inputs, internal memories and emotions, and potentially real-time working memory style encoded goals towards some kind of action. That's a very active area of research, and one could argue that that's basically trying to figure out how does the brain make a decision. It's it's a very rational sort of model, I think. Well, no, because remember, there's emotions and other things in the system that might cause irrationality, right? And in fact, a lot of the most interesting aspects of this are about things that what you know you or I might call in a colloquial sense irrational. But they're actually some of the most fascinating things that go on. But, but of course, but that then the key word here is optimal, right? The optimal decision, right? So do you mean rationally? Because you can think that rationally, this is the optimal course of action, but emotionally, precisely the opposite. Well, there's a concept right? called discounting where, you know, what's optimal if you want to look at a reward that's, say, an hour from now might be less optimal if you're looking at 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Suppose I have $50, right? I could go spend it all right now. Um, you know, uh, you know, at a, a, you know, a gambling in a way, or I can invest it and, uh, you know, further education or donate it to a charity and try to build the community. And it's a longer term investment that might pay off over a longer time scale, um, and, uh, might be much more, more valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, on the other hand, suppose that I can invest the $50 in something short term, like I'm going to go, you know, buy a lot of food that I'm going to eat today, or I can invest it in something that will grow and become a huge payoff later, right? So optimal is also, and there's a whole branch now of behavioral economics and what some people call even neuroeconomics, where the goal is to figure out what optimality is as a function of time, scenario, and so on. And that is due to the fact that the world is an uncertain place, right? Mm -hmm. I, might, I might invest all my, I might invest at $50 in a long-term uh, investment, and then maybe, who knows, our town is hit by a tornado, and I have to go and, and repair the house tomorrow, and sell my savings at a loss, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a, the beauty of this, I think, is that we now are at the point where the community is trying to make these kinds of, of things, uh, uh, of judgments like optimality and so on, very precise in terms of temporal and situational and contextual uh, aspects. Mm -hmm. Dr. Boyden, unfortunately, time is advancing here, so we only have another four or five minutes here. Uh, let, me, let me see if I can go through the other questions here. Um, you mentioned a few of these sort of, uh, long-term benefits of your work, but 
you didn't say anything about mind uploading. Would you care to say about how crazy, possible or impossible such a potentiality would be given your research? Well, already there are some small organisms for which it is possible to map all the connections between them. And increasingly, there is a lot of effort now to try to record the neural activity of all the cells in an organism. Um, so, for example, several papers have come out in the past couple of years where in a small organism like the fish, you can actually record all the neural activity um, or at least a significant fraction of it. So one of the big questions, of course, now is if you do have a circuit model of a brain and also you have the activity patterns and maybe some other kinds of information like behaviorally relevant parameters and certain molecular information, could you simulate a entire nervous system or maybe even an entire organism in a computer? And so I think the next couple of years are going to be very interesting because such kinds of simulations might start to become possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the questions is, if you have such a simulation, how long can it run? And can it generate useful behavior over some enduring period of time? Or does it suddenly, you know, much like you know, we talked about the Lorenz attractor becoming unpredictable within a very short amount of time, do you suddenly re encounter various constraints that, that make it difficult to predict further than that? Mm -hmm. So I find this all to be a very interesting direction to go with, to try and figure out, can we uh, take the information from a nervous system or maybe even an entire body and upload that into a computer and then to try to run that set of data, as it were, and um, the computation specified by the molecular composition and or wiring diagrams um, in algorithmic form and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that constitutes mind uploading, you know, uh, is something that probably ties in with other questions like what is consciousness and what is free will yeah. that we've already discussed. And what happens to identity in a situation like that? Uh, yeah, so again, I think defining these things and... Yes, and, absolutely uh, is, crucial. ...is one of the tricky parts. Yes, yes. I, I totally there are less The beauty of being a tool developer is that the technologies will be useful for answering specific scientific questions and then by loading the data from a nervous system into a computer and trying to simulate it, one can then try to test theories of nervous system function. Of course, one possibility is that those models will hit a roadblock. Maybe there's some other avenue of molecular information that we haven't mapped yet because we're not aware of it, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, for example, it's been shown that various diffusible messengers like cannabinoids or nitric oxide are known to spread in non-traditional ways in the brain, right? And um, you know, endocannabinoids, it was shown by Rachel Wilson and, and others, go backwards um, at synapses. You know, and nitric oxide, as was shown by this paper by Bartolo Bram and colleagues, um, can diffuse from cell to cell, but it acts with very precise millisecond timescale precision. And so there's many interesting uh, areas of research that are where the mechanisms of brain computation are still being revealed. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's very, very fascinating, but unfortunately we have to bring our interview to an end. So let me ask you the second last question, which is where can people, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? We have a website, syntheticneurobiology.org, where we post our publications, but also um, uh, videos and animations where we try to explain the kinds of technologies that we're building and what they can do. And also uh, we are uh, starting to work on some various other kinds of teaching tools and, um, and dissemination tools because we want to spread our technologies to help as many scientists and, and clinicians as possible. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned as we, as we start to ramp up some of these other programs for teaching and dissemination, including some of our attempts to help build the neurotechnology industry. Can we help companies disseminate tools that might be difficult to um, manufacture en masse in an academic environment? like ro robots or nanofabricated neural recording devices and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that, those are all fascinating developments and I, I'm just very much looking forward to, to keep following your work. Uh, but we've been talking here for over an hour now and I want to ask you, if our viewers were to take a single message or perhaps the most important thing for our conversation today with you, what would you like that to be? Well, many fields of engineering have not yet been applied or only, are only now starting to be applied to the brain. And if we think about chemicals, materials, um, electrical devices, and so on, the ability to map, 
core control and build brain circuits is going to open up huge new frontiers to both understand various aspects of humanity, but also potentially to treat or cure brain disorders. And one of the exciting things that's happening now is this influx of engineering into the study of the brain. And so, for example, this Obama Brain Initiative, which is very much about facilitating the development of new tools, one of its most important effects, I think, is by is bringing new engineers into the brain. So anybody who is from an engineering discipline and would like to talk about what areas of impact they might have, we'd love to hear from them. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Dr. Ed Boyden, thank you very much for being with us today. Very good talking to you. Yeah.